0: I'm Ronald Broussard, and I'm Franco Terzano, and this is a Canadian Taxpayers Podcast, where we're dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. In Deep Dive, we're going to be talking about how taxpayers can push back against the so-called Great Reset. And did you know that governor generals can bill taxpayers even after their death? We'll cover that in Waste Watch. But first, let's chat with Franco about a new campaign the Canadian Taxpayers Federation just launched in Alberta.
1: Yeah, we just launched the Fight Equalization campaign. And especially for all of our Alberta listeners, you better mark your calendars because on October 18th of this year, we're having a referendum on equalization in the province. And this is our chance as Albertans to tell Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that the status quo must change. This is finally our chance as Albertans to fight back against Ottawa. Now, Renault, as, as you might be aware, complaining about equalization is a, is a very popular hobby in my neck <laughs> of the woods out here. <laughs> uh, but the CTF and our supporters, we're actually going to be doing something about it. And, uh, you know, that's why we're leading the campaign opposing equalization and to get a fair deal in Canada. And our listeners can join our campaign at fightequalization.ca
0: for free. OK, let's take a quick step back. Uh, so equalization is one of those issues where people have really, really strong opinion, mostly against it out West, kind of for it out East. Uh, but most people don't necessarily fully understand the program because it's much more complex than people think. So Franco, can you explain what equalization is very briefly for our listeners and why Alberta's equalization referendum is so important?
1: Yeah, well, this is a really complex issue, and I think there's only like a handful of people who actually fully understand the equalization program. But fortunately, I sat down with uh, former Alberta Finance and Energy Minister Ted Morton. Now, he's definitely one of those people who understands the program. And here's how we explained equalization and why it has been so unfair for Alberta taxpayers.
2: Uh, equalization is an attempt to say Canada has have provinces and have not provinces they should all have roughly equal access to health and other social services. And so the government's going to redistribute money from the have provinces to the have not provinces so that all Canadians have a more or less equal service in terms of health and other social services. That's the theory. Okay, that's the theory. In practice, it's been very political. Uh, Alberta hasn't gotten a dollar since the 1960s. In fact, if you do go back to the beginning, we're close over $600 billion net, 600 billion, that's over half a, uh, half a trillion dollars net losers in equalization. And lo and behold, Quebec on the other hand has collected, I think it's 497 billion over that same decade.
1: I also asked Ted why he thinks equalization referendum is so important. Here's what he said.
2: We need a very frank and tough discussion um, about Alberta's future. And the equalization referendum would give us that opportunity. Uh, there's a Supreme Court decision, uh, dealing with Quebec, of course. What else? Uh, that if a if a province has a has a referendum on a constitutional reform, and there's a clear majority on a clear question, so clear majority, clear question, then that triggers a duty to negotiate. Those are the Supreme Court's words, duty to negotiate on the part of Ottawa and the federal government. So I don't know what the question will be in October. I hope it'll be very simple. I hope it is just should Section 36, the equalization program, be abolished? Question mark. Yes or no? And if there's a clear majority on a clear question, and I think if Albertans know are familiar or made to be familiar with the numbers I've mentioned to you, I'd be surprised if we didn't get eighty percent approval. And that then triggers, it forces everybody to come to the table and have a frank discussion about Alberta's future.
1: So this equalization referendum is an attempt to get the provinces and the feds to the negotiating table to have an adult conversation about equalization fairness. And it's also important for Albertans because this might be our best bet to get our legitimate grievances onto the kitchen tables in Victoria, to Montreal, and to St. John's.
0: Well, you know, the worst thing Canada could do right now, at at least in terms of national unity, would be to ignore this issue. Uh, This is an issue that's been boiling out west for years and years and years. And at some point, we just need to get all the adults together in the same room and air out our grievances and find a way uh, to to fix this, uh, find a way forward. Uh, But look, there's a lot of uh, philosophical or political argument for against equalization, but Canadian taxpayers podcast so can you break down the cost uh, of equalization to taxpayers well Morton has estimated that
1: in 2018 alone equalization cost Alberta taxpayers three billion dollars so that's a lot of money and when you break it down per Albertan it's actually a cost of uh, more than six hundred dollars per person so it's a lot of money yeah and that's just a yearly cost um, but look, this equalization referendum, it's about addressing equalization unfairness. but it's even more than just one federal program, right? Because when you look at all mm-hmm. the spending and you look at all the taxes, um, Albertans have actually paid more than $600 billion, more Wait, to the feds. Wait, 600? 600 billion. Albertans have paid more than $600 billion more to the feds than we've received back in spending since the 1960s. So that's a ton of money, right? But there's actually um, more insult to add to this injury because the feds are also making it harder for us to get our neighbors back to work, for us to put food on the table, and for us to develop our own resources. Um, Now, remember, the feds rejected the Northern Gateway Pipeline. They moved Mm -hmm. the regulatory go posts on Energy East. Our political system chased away Kinder Morgan when it was trying to spend billions of its own dollars to build the Trans Mountain expansion. And then you've got Trudeau's Bill C-69, which we call out here the uh, No More Pipelines law. And you got Trudeau's Bill C-48, which is the discriminatory tanker ban. So not only have Albertans you know, continue to punch above our weight for the rest of Canada in terms of our financial contribution. But now we, we, we have a federal government that is making it harder for us to develop our resources.
0: You know, those are absolutely legitimate grievances. And you've made it pretty clear that uh, equalization is harming Alberta taxpayers. But here's something a lot of people don't know about. Uh, equalization is also harming equalization recipient provinces. Uh, because equalization makes it easier for politicians to rely less on uh, growing their economies and more on equalization dollars. We've seen this play out in Quebec. Quebec has tremendous natural gas potential that could bring good, high-paying jobs uh, to rural areas of the province that are in, in dire need of, uh, of good jobs. Uh, and the province keeps putting a moratorium on natural gas development. Even New Brunswick. Uh, New Brunswick has uh, very good natural gas development potential, too, And for years and years, premiers have kind of shied away from developing it. Uh, Here's what New Brunswick Premier Clayton Higgs actually had to say about this. Uh, He said that reducing reliance and equalization would force provinces to develop resources and serve as a kind of reality discipline. Uh, Even Quebec Premier François Legault acknowledged uh, that this was an issue and said he would like to reduce Quebec's reliance on equalization by increasing the province's wealth and increasing the average incomes in the province. Uh, As he put it, I, I would prefer to be beside Ontario or the Western provinces, but for that, the economy has to be prioritized. So, Franco, it looks like there's some common ground here. looks like uh, equalization just doesn't really work for anyone. You know, there can be some agreement about how to fix it and, you know, make something better out of it.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why it's so important for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation to be leading this fight. I mean, we're a Mm cross-country organization, right? So we have a role to play in building coalitions across Canada that the status quo is not fair and that it needs to be changed. Um, And especially in Alberta, you know, we're going to be playing a large role in our fight equalization campaign. We're going to be getting the information out. We're going to be spreading the message. We're going to be mobilizing And we're going to be making sure people get out and vote. Because if Albertans don't vote, we're telling Trudeau that he's doing a good job. And I'm sure that's not the (laughs) message that many Albertans have for our our fearless leader right now. So, you know, we do need all hands on deck because we need to win a clear majority in this referendum. So especially our Albertan listeners, uh, please go visit our campaign website, FightEqualization.ca. Go pledge your vote and please sign up to be a volunteer because we really need all the help that we can get in making sure um, a large number of Albertans vote against the status quo.
0: Well, thanks for bringing this to our attention, Franco. And we'll be sure to include a link to our fightequalization.ca campaign website in the show notes. So please make sure you check out the website, share it widely with your friends, your colleagues, your family, and sign up to pledge to vote against equalization. Now, next up, we'll have Aaron Woodrick and Jasmine Moulton, who are here to talk about the latest political buzzword, the so-called Great Reset.
3: This is Deep Dive, the part of the show where we dive deeper into important issues that Canadian taxpayers need to know about. I'm Jasmine Moulton, and I'll be speaking with our federal director, Aaron Woodrick, about something called, you've probably heard of it, the Great Reset. Now, there's been a lot of chatter about what the Great Reset is, at least on Twitter. So, Aaron, uh, just for clarity's sake, can you tell our listeners what is meant by this idea, the Great Reset?
4: Yeah, thanks, Jasmine. And you know, the Great Reset, as you said, has got a lot of uh, attention online. Uh, sometimes it's used with a capital G Great, a capital R Reset, um, and it is a real thing. So I just want to be clear off the top. It's an initiative of the World Economic Forum. You can check it out. There's an official website and everything. And really it just um, involves an approach to reshaping or reorganizing you know, global economies after the pandemic. Uh, climate change is a, is a central focus. Uh, you know, the Prime Minister has used the term, um, others like the Deputy Governor of the Bank of Canada, other like-minded world leaders. So there is a, there is a sort of movement or a broad uh, approach that fits under the term Great Reset. That's a real thing. Uh, but uh, there is also, as seems to be the case all the time these days online, there are some more extreme interpretations of what the Great Reset is. Some might even call those conspiracy theories. Uh, I don't want to get into those sorts of things, but I do still think it's important to look at what this so-called Great Reset might mean in the Canadian context, you know, and the Trudeau government and how it would impact regular Canadians.
3: All right. So you mentioned that climate change is a central focus of this Great Reset. But if I remember correctly, last summer, Justin Trudeau seemed to be implying that the pandemic was an opportunity to reshape the economy. So whatever happened to that?
4: Yeah, they walked that one back fairly quickly. And I like to think that that's because he read the room um, and others in his government realized that if you're talking about the pandemic as some sort of uh, fantastic opportunity, uh, rather than the crisis that it is, uh, that that was pretty tone deaf and was not going to go over well with Canadians. Um, And it certainly was not a blank check for him to spend on every pet project under the sun uh, that he could dream up.
3: All right. But Aaron, when you say he dialed it back, I mean, the federal deficit is massive. It's almost 400 billion this year alone. So what do you mean when you say he dialed it back?
4: Yeah, um, he didn't dial back what he was spending now. I think what they dialed back was what they were planning to spend, you know, starting last fall and this year. Um, They've sort of put that off um, again, because I think they realized that if they were, uh, you know, going to pivot, so to speak, to things like climate change as early as September of last year, that that was really out of whack with where most people are. You know, I think a lot of Canadians right now are focused on things like getting vaccines, uh, delivered and, and, and people getting them, uh, jobs, you know, people are concerned about the economy and as simple things as schools and hospitals. Um, those things are are top of mind for Canadians. Uh, so most people frankly are not looking for a a quote unquote reset, uh, so much as they are looking to basically a return to how life was before the pandemic.
3: All right. Well, the very word reset itself though, seems to imply that this won't be just a return to normalcy. So, uh, Can you lay out for us what this might look like in practical terms?
4: Yeah, I mean, the the Great Reset, Reset is a little bit uh, utopian, Uh, the idea being that uh, you use the pandemic as an excuse to spend money, uh, you know, a lot of money on countless new things to address some of the problems that were there before the pandemic. So even though they don't have anything to do with the pandemic itself, uh, you want to use the pandemic as a pretext to try and tackle those problems as well. And the catch, of course, is uh, that a lot of those problems would be very, very expensive to deal with.
3: Well, that's the thing, too, is that we already took on so much debt during the pandemic that really you'd think that they'd be shelving any sort of expensive pre-pandemic ideas instead of doubling down on them now that we can afford it even less. So you're saying they're doing the opposite of that right now.
4: Yeah, and it's I think really unusual and uh, counterintuitive. You know, they're talking about things like government daycare programs and a pharmacare care program, infrastructure, and green spending, and you know, none of none of these were things that that we could afford before the pandemic, um, and they weren't planning to spend on them before the pandemic, but suddenly now. They're super keen to spend, even though they've just, just blown hundreds of billions that they'd never budgeted for. So I think most people, that would strike them as pretty counterintuitive as, as now being the time that we should pile on even more debt, uh, you know, when we just racked up so much that we hadn't planned on, on spending in the first place
3: counterintuitive is a really polite way, Erin, for you to describe uh, their impulses. Most people when they're broke would think, wow, how can I maybe rein in spending? But, uh, you know, only politicians and really government could think of, you know, after they've just racked up hundreds of billions of dollars in debt, their first thought is how should we spend more?
4: Yeah. And, you know, perhaps the most tragic part is that so many of these climate change focused initiatives, uh, they actually amount to making life more expensive for Canadians, there's going to be massive cost increases. I mean, you look at the carbon tax. Uh, They're raising that they said they wouldn't, and they're doing it anyway. Um, And they're also imposing a second larger carbon tax that Canadians are starting to learn about. They're calling it the clean fuel standard. It's actually much more punitive than the first carbon tax. And there's no rebate attached to that one, unlike the first one. So those are just two examples. Um, It's going to mean, bottom line, that life is more expensive for many Canadians and their families, and it's going to lead to more energy poverty. So it's going to mean some people are forced to choose between things like paying their electricity bills or being able to buy groceries.
3: Well, that all sounds really depressing.
4: Yeah, and as if that's not depressing enough, uh, take a stab at who you think is going to have to pay for all of this.
3: (laughs) Well, if I had to guess, I would think that Trudeau would tell us that billionaires would pay for all of it.
4: Yeah, I think and that's always the easy answer. I mean, the catch being there's just not very many of them. And, you know, all the analyses, and I know you've done work on the wealth tax, there's just not enough money, nowhere near enough there to pay for all this stuff. So what it will mean is higher taxes for regular Canadians, and we're already seeing it happen. Uh, You know, the carbon taxes I just talked about, payroll taxes went up January first. alcohol taxes, there's a Netflix tax coming. And in future years, uh, everything from housing taxes, to death taxes, to income taxes, to sales taxes, all of that is going to be on the table. So it is a pretty bleak outlook, to say the least.
3: All right. Well, that all sounds awful. But now that you mention it, it really does sound familiar because The Great Reset, when you say all of the things that it might mean, at the end of the day, it really just sounds like the same old ideas we've been hearing for years, just with new branding.
4: Yeah, I think so. And, and perhaps that's their fixation on recycling. They're just recycling old ideas and giving them new names. Um, and it is a lot of the same bad ideas, except they're turbocharged now. And the, the focus is overwhelmingly on climate change, almost to the exclusion of everything else. And I think that's notable because most people, most people would agree climate change is important, environmental issues are important. Uh, but this government tends to rank it as more important than literally everything else all the time, 24-7, even when the policies uh, that they implement do a lot of damage to Canada's economy and to Canadian families.
3: Well, here at the CTF, we've always fought against higher debt, higher taxes, uh, policies that make life more expensive for Canadians. So for our listeners, you can be sure that we're going to keep fighting against the Great Reset since it just sounds like all of those things. So for our listeners, make sure you check out our show notes and uh, get more information about why you should be concerned about the Great Reset.
4: It's time for Waste Watch. Now, this is where we make fun of the dumb things that governments are doing with your money. And boy, I wish we could do away with this segment, but there's just so many things that we always have plenty to choose from each week. Um, And this week, we've got our own investigative journalist, James Wood. He's back. Uh, And this week, he's got an exclusive about the taxpayer-funded benefits that governor generals get. What have you got for us, James?
5: Yeah, so I mean, everyone will have seen the news about Julie Payette over the last couple weeks. First, there was the report, and then she resigned. And we're still figuring out what happens next. But there's been a lot of discussions about the benefits that she gets now that she's left the role of governor general. Like MPs, it's a big pension, pretty much the definition of a golden parachute. But former governor generals get an even sweeter deal. There's a program in place since 1979 that allows former governor generals to have their office expenses paid for, which literally extends into the afterlife.
4: Now, I've I've seen this policy and I almost fell out of my chair when I heard about it because it's not enough that we have a situation where... Governors general are getting lifetime expense accounts, but it turns out it's even longer than their life. It's from beyond the grave, which is just unbelievable. Um, I mean, when you think about it, what office expenses could an estate even be claiming six months after somebody dies?
5: Yeah, it's, it's, it's nuts. If you're just explaining to somebody in a bar, it'd just be the strangest thing to think of, just for a bit of background the prime minister had ordered a review of the program back in 2018 it came after some pretty brutal articles from the national post about adrian clarkson's spending under the program she was going over 100 grand each year and it was only showing because of an accounting quirk in canada's public accounts
4: yeah i remember this and it was because it, they only showed up in the public accounts if you spent over 100 grand you got your own separate line item Um, and if you kept it under a hundred grand, it just, it just, it disappeared into a bigger pot with all the other XGGs. Um, but Clarkson was the worst by far. I mean, she racked up $1.3 million, I think over something like 15 years, like it's just a crazy amount. And of course we at the taxpayers gave her the lifetime achievement, Teddy, not once, but twice. That's kind of like being elected to the hall of fame twice, a a really bad hall of fame that nobody actually wants to be in. Uh, but anyway, I, I, digress about, uh, Madam Clarkson. Why don't you tell us with this review he ordered in 2018, what happened with this review?
5: Yeah, so getting the copy, it was pretty illuminating. So there were 17 pages, there was no redactions, and it laid out how the program functioned. Basically, it showed that it wasn't cheap. Each former governor general can expense taxpayers up to $206,040 per year. With five active former governor generals, if Payette gets to use the program, the annual bill could go over $1 million. The money gets used for hospitality costs, salaries for up to four staff, office costs, and travel expenses. And it's all tied back to duties they perform in retirement after they leave their official role.
4: Yeah. And the real cap around the jug too, that people should know is that we don't get any transparency about it. We have yeah. no idea what they're spending it on. We're told, I guess the report says there are rules, um, about what they can expense, but we don't know exactly what they are. And we don't know what qualifies, uh, we yeah. just have to pay the bill. Yeah. Um, and as you said, that, that can get pricey real quick, uh, you know, a million bucks a year, just for the former GGs, um, if they claim the maximum, And that is just an unbelievably sweet package. I mean, even prime ministers don't get anything like this. Um, You know, I I don't think people would be so concerned if we were just paying for, you know, their parking or for coffee for events or something. But up to $206,000 a year is a lot of bread to spend on someone who's supposed to be retired.
5: Exactly, exactly. Like this is massively expensive. I mean, it, it says so in the report in 2017-18 in alone, which is the last year on record that they had access to, the expenses submitted by the former governor's general went over $540,000. And then like you go to the aspect where it's like this program keeps going after they die. Like it's, it's nuts. It's bizarre.
4: Yeah, it's it's strange, and it, I mean, the obvious question is what what would you need that for? What I mean, and you have office expenses because you're presumably doing things that your office needs to help you with. I maybe I'm missing something, but if you've passed away, you're not doing anything, so I don't, I don't know what on earth yeah. the, those the, what expenses would be eligible in that circumstance.
5: It's it's ridiculous. The review, uh, which we were the first ones to actually actually obtain, was completed in October of 2019 and given to the Privy Council Office. And you'd think that maybe they look at this and and make some kind of sweeping decision to maybe change things up or get rid of it entirely, but it made no recommendations to end the program, though it did raise the possibility of extending it for life or adjusting the time frame, the the for life time frame and knocking down the expense limit that they they can actually claim.
4: Yeah. And given what's happened recently, you would think that there's (laughs) the time for studying is over. It's time to make a decision here. Um, And, you know, reading the report, it was it was it was discouraging in that they seem to be so focused on Trying to find ways to make what's clearly a bad program less terrible, uh, rather than just doing the right thing and 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 cutting the cord, scrapping it all together.
5: And th- that's the thing. You'd think that uh, PCO would be would be doing something with this. Like they have the report now; they've had it for a while. Like maybe they would be able to say, "Oh, we're going to look at this and do something in X, Y, Z amount of time, or or give more of a ter- firm." Uh, a firm grasp on what's happening with any changes, but I reached out to them for, for comment when I was doing up our, our stories on, on the report. And all they would tell me is, and I quote here, work continues to determine how best to ensure that the program continues to function in an effective manner Now, putting that in plain language, there's no plan to stop this waste anytime soon. They also wouldn't even say whether or not it made it to the prime minister's office, and emails I obtained showed the review was basically forgotten during COVID-19. I would bet with Payette's recent chaos, it may get back onto people's desks, or at least
4: Uh, at home. Well, I'd hope so. And you know, this seems to be a government that never wants to act until it's a crisis. And it's fair to say this has blown up in their face pretty bad. Um, But as you say, the the reaction you've got so far from within government has not been very encouraging. Um, It sounds like they're doubling down. I personally think it's a pretty dumb hill to die on, but here we are.
5: Yeah, here we are. <laughs> for anyone who wants to know more about the story and, and read the report itself and any of the background documentation we had, we dug up, um, we have a full write-up on taxbear.com with links to all the
0: exclusive records. So have at her. So that's it for this week. Uh, thank you, James Wood, for editing the show and making us sound good. And uh, thank you for listening all the way to the end. <laughs> now there's just one more thing left to do.
1: Please like and subscribe to the show and please share with your friends, your family and your colleagues. It really helps us get the message out to more taxpayers. All right, we'll talk to you again next week.
4: Hi, I'm Scott Hennig, President of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. If you've got another minute, I'd like to ask you to think about the one person you know that would really enjoy listening to this podcast. Do us a favor and do them a favor and send them a quick note to let them know about it. At the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we believe there is power in numbers. That's why we've worked so hard to build an army of taxpayers who are ready to push back. And we did it because people like you shared our work with that one person that they knew would really appreciate taking part. Thanks for listening. And thanks for doing your part to make Canada a better place.